Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 82 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today I have with me Graham Phillips. Now, Graham's been on before, twice before, in fact, episodes 19 and 29. So if you haven't listened to those, really worth going back and having a listen to those when you get a chance. And when we were discussing what could we talk about, one of the topics that came up was dementia and Alzheimer's. And I jumped on that because we haven't had anybody speak about dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, Graham confesses to not be an expert or a specialist in the area, but I think he gives us a good grounding of things we need to know, things we need to look out for, and things that we can be doing to avoid those latter life illnesses and diseases. So before I tell you a bit about Graham, I just want to point out that last week there was no podcast and that's because I was really ill at the beginning of the week, which is the days when I normally um, finish off everything for the podcast and I just could not function to get all the podcast together. So apologies for that. We're now back on track and so we just skipped a week. Hopefully you're still with us and we'll enjoy this episode. And let me tell you a bit about Graham. Graham Phillips, B Farm, FR Farm S, is a second generation community pharmacist. He describes himself as the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Having played a very senior leadership role in the pharmacy profession, he became disillusioned with the NHS one-size-fits-all approach to healthcare with its emphasis on waiting for symptoms to arrive before treating or suppressing them with drugs. He pioneered a new approach using his scientific knowledge, clinical expertise and new technology which resulted in the prolongevity service. The Prolongevity program helps people who want to lose weight, improve well-being and avoid or reverse diabetes by using new technology to monitor real-time blood sugar levels. Prolongevity provides personalised advice based on your data to help you make changes to your diet and lifestyle. They avoid traditional approaches that treat symptoms after the damage has been done. Prevention is better than cure. Graham has two sons. One is also a pharmacist and the other a corporate lawyer. He lives with his partner Karen, a GP, also passionate about lifestyle medicine in North London. 
Like Jackie, Graham is also an ambassador for the Public Health Collaboration. He believes that the world has become dominated by big food on the one hand makes you sick and big pharma on the other makes you 10% better. In the end, science must prevail. So let's go and listen to what Graham talks about. Welcome back, Graham, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. You're back for the third time. It's fabulous to have you with us. You put up with me for a th- on a third occasion. I know, I know. And we had this in the diary for prior to Christmas, but then Louise was moving back to Australia, so we've moved it to now. So thank you for that. No, thanks for having me back again. It's always fun to see you guys. <laughs> um, so we we spoke about all the different topics we could talk about and one of the ones that was aired was Alzheimer's and dementia and I know you're not an expert in the topic but I think that's what we're going to talk about today but maybe for our listeners that haven't heard any of your previous episodes perhaps just give us a quick background of how you came to the low carb space. Sure so um, I'm a community pharmacist uh born and bred. My father's a pharmacist, my son's a pharmacist, so it's kind of in the family. Um, and we built up a group of 10 pharmacies, won all the awards that we could win, and most of them twice. And also, I became very senior in the profession. So I helped establish the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, which is the professional body for pharmacy. Um, and along the way, had the great opportunity to meet all sorts of people in all sorts of other healthcare related spaces. So I met the chief dental officer, the chief nurse, the chief medical officer, uh, lots of people in public health England. And at a certain point, having won all these prizes and awards and had this exposure to all these wonderful practitioners, became very frustrated because I started off as you do as a fresh faced young health professional thinking you're going to help people Mm. and what I saw was everyone around me getting fatter and sicker and I meant spooning more and more tablets into people yeah and the drugs bills going up and up and up to give you some context the current uh NHS total bill is about 165 billion more or less has that gone up since we last spoke? Wasn't it yeah. 140? Gosh. Yeah, yeah. It's, it goes up all the time. And, and COVID obviously has led to huge additional increases. Yeah. Um, the UK drugs bill is 20 billion. The total bill for UK community pharmacists, in other words, myself and all the pharmacists in the country put together, cost the NHS less than 3 billion. Mm. And the, and the total bill for general practice is 10 billion. So the drugs bill is twice the cost of, of your, of your doctor. Yeah. And seven or eight times the cost of your pharmacist, which is fine if we can say that we're getting great success. Yes. That's the difference, isn't it? So it feels like the whole country is taking an antidepressant or a statin or both at this enormous cost. And if you take some raw statistical data, and you can find the data in the same way that I can on the Public Health England website, healthy life expectancy has been going backwards for years. But we don't tend to measure that. We talk about life expectancy. And in the last few years, not only has healthy life expectancy continued to go backwards, but life expectancy itself has gone backwards. Yeah. 
So we're investing more and more money in the NHS. A higher and higher percentage of that is going on the drugs. And what are we really getting in return? Well, the evidence is that the entire NHS is two or three years of poor quality life. Because most of the money is spent at the end of life, end of life care, and when people have got, you know, three, four, five long-term conditions. Yeah. And if you then look at the budget for Public Health England, and whether you're a fan of Public Health England or not isn't kind of, I don't want to get into that. Yeah. Public Health England budget is about 5 billion. So another way of putting it is that we're spending 99 point something percent of the money locking the door after the horse is bolted and less than 1% trying to tether the horse. Yeah. And it just makes no sense either in the way that the money's spent or in, or in terms of the outcomes that we're getting. Yeah. And all of this came to me, you know, over a period of time having spent many years myself hungry and fat. I was a hungry fat kid, I was a hungry fat adult. I spent my life you know, getting hungrier and fatter. And yet I'd followed all the guidelines. I knew all the science. I was doing everything right. I wasn't cheating myself until I learned the truth, which is you don't have to be hungry. And it's not all a matter of calories in, calories out and self-control. And there's a completely different path. And I guess my journey started really with that original Horizon program, the 5-2 Diet by Michael Mosley. Mm -hmm. And that began my journey because I suddenly lost all this weight and wasn't hungry. And I thought, all I things that I thought I knew don't fit the equation of what's happened to me. And it made me re-explore the science, which brought me to the low-carb community, you know, the, cat, the, the insulin model and all those other kind of hormonal things. And actually, when you re-explore the science and go back to the basics, you realise that we've all been lied to for a very long time, partly due to the vested interest of big food and partly due to the interest of big pharma. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be this way. Yeah. So that was kind of my personal health journey. And then at a certain point in time, I discovered the fascinating Israeli research, which correlated sugar response to a continual blood glucose monitor and the microbiome. And what that shows is that if you feed a thousand people an identical meal, you'll get equal and opposite responses to the same identical meal. Yeah. What's equally fascinating, and the work of Tim Spector is the best one to look at for this, is that even identical twins, right? What can we say about identical twins? Nature and nurture are the same. Yes. So you, in a kind of naive kind of way, you might assume that they would die of the same thing on the same day. I mean, not exactly, but more or less. Yes. And actually, the correlation is extremely poor between even identical twins and weight or health, both physical and mental health. Yep. So there's suddenly something else at play, and there's something else is the microbiome, the bugs in your stomach. So from all of that was born my prolongevity program, which is we look at multifactorial uh, aspects of health, sleep, stress, um, exercise, diet, give everyone a continual blood glucose monitor. And we are able to, you know, having spent all my life spooning tablets into people, I'm now de-prescribing de like there's no tomorrow. I'm finding that we can correct people's health 
and we get huge health gains in less than eight weeks mm. by explaining to people what the true parameters are, how they can modify themselves, how they can almost look inside themselves with a continual blood glucose monitor and correct. Yeah. So that's kind of how Prolongevity was born. Brilliant. So are we going to talk about dementia and Alzheimer's? And I think, well, there is a difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. So it might be good to start with what is the difference? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd like to preface my remarks with I am not an expert on dementia. I know a reasonable amount about it. Um, I have among my prolongevity clients some cases of dementia, some of them with, you know, what they call mild cognitive impairment all the way up to quite severe. So I'm confident with it, but I do not want to misportray myself as a, as a world expert because I'm not. Mm. I would certainly, I'm sure during our discussion, I'll mention some other experts where people can go to find out more. So this is very much a kind of um, a gentle grounding in the subject. Yeah, and right. We can disabuse some myths um, and people can then use that as a platform to go elsewhere. So we know that for example, not all cancers are the same. And we know that type 1 diabetes isn't the same as type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. It gives a similar name. Yeah. And I think it's unfortunate that we use Alzheimer's. Um, it was um, Dr. Aloysius Alzheimer, who I think um, discovered the disease, to, to cover all dementias. Now, um, Dementia is a generalized term and we can sort of, we know what the characteristics are, kind of loss of memory and ultimately loss of self. Um, and that's, there are a whole variety of different dementias. Alzheimer's dementia is probably 60% of all the dementias. So, um, and, and that's a particular disease uh, process, which we might get into. So I just think I'm very keen and medical terminology gets terribly confused. And we talk about, for example, good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And there's no such thing. There's just, chole just cholesterol. Yeah. I think medical terminology is almost designed to confuse you. And then because you're so confused, you kind of accept the perceived wisdom because it's very hard to get to grips with it. Yes. So what I think we should do is talk about dementia in general terms and Alzheimer's as a specific subset of dementia. So dementia is the umbrella term. Alzheimer's disease is one of the commonest. It's the commonest cause of dementia, dementia, but there are others. Right. Okay. And is, you know, when people are just getting older and they're just losing that mental function, which one could guess, I guess is um, due to too much sugar and not getting enough fuel to the brain. Would, is, that, is that very different to Alzheimer's? Well, it may be or it, it may not be. So um, if you don't use your brain, it's like any other kind of muscle, it tends to atrophy. Yeah. And a certain amount of memory loss is very common. And if you, if you hear uh, any of the world experts on uh, dementia who haven't got dementia speak, they'll say it's true that their mental acuity is not as good as it was in their 30s. So there's a certain natural loss. I mean, you know, a, the aging process probably means that we're just generally, you know, um, our immune system's less effective, our musculoskeletal system starts to wear <clears throat> and, and our brain doesn't work as well. This is a much more accelerated form of of, of um, mental aging, if you like. Mm, so yeah. those the two things can be hard to tease apart, but they're not the same thing. And there's yeah. certain characteristics, 
diagnostic characteristics of, of dementia that, that aren't the same as very mild memory loss as you age. Right. Okay. So where are we going to start? Where do you, where do you think would well, be a I good place to start? Thought we might start by discussing what we think most people imagine dementia to be. Um, and perhaps I could ask you that. When, when, you, when you hear dementia or Alzheimer's, what does it make you think in terms of symptoms? And also, what does it make you think in terms of cause? Now, that, that's a hard one because hmm. the cause, I suspect, from all my learnings through the years in this space. Um, okay, so symptoms would be – so I don't really – I don't really know the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. But I would take it as um, mem memory loss, forgetting things, forgetting people's names, um, repeating the same thing over and over again. So my mum has got a friend at the moment. She's in her 80s and she keeps forgetting what she's already said. So things like that, I would link to it. But I don't know how me as a lay person would know whether that's dementia or Alzheimer's I suspect if somebody was younger so in their 30s 40s 50s 60s even probably might be Alzheimer's rather than dementia um, and now knowing what I know I associate that with the brain being starved of, of fuel so the glucose not being able to cross the brain barrier um, and therefore bit by bit the brain is starving of fuel so it needs fuel but it's not getting it that's that all i know really so i think there are there have been some wonderful movies hasn't there was the one recently um the father don't know if you saw that no i haven't seen that um who's that fantastic welsh actor that uh, see i'm also suffering from uh, <laughs> loss um they'll come to me there was still alice I don't know if you remember her. She was in her forties, wasn't she? She was supposed to be a university lecturer, and um, she's running as she normally does. And one day she's running and she loses her way, and she loses her memory in her forties. So there are a number of different uh, wonderful films. There's been two or three films recently that you can Google, and they kind of illustrate different facets of dementia in younger people and in older people. And the other one uh, that I think is worth talking uh, uh, sort of using as a good exa example is david Baddiel. he talks I've, if you've been to see david Baddiel's one man show and he talks about his father and his father's got lewy body dementia and in those cases it's not really so much about memory loss it's a form of disinhibition right and he and you get older people that they become hypersexualized right and, and incredibly embarrassing obviously if you've got, you know, an aged, decrepit father, but he becomes hypersexualized with the young nurses, you don't know where to put yourself. Mm, yeah. So I would definitely look at, I, I don't know whether that, that um, I went to see the, uh, it's a one-man show, David Baddiel, my, my Family Not the Movie or something, I can't remember what it was. But anything that Baddiel's written on dementia, that's kind of, if you kind of want to understand the different ways it plays out in the different forms of dementia, you know, still Alice is the example of a young person who gets dementia in their 40s, who's a, a fit, universe, slim university lecturer. Badil's example is of the Louis body dementia. Um, and who is it that paid Hannibal Lecter? You'll know the name. Yes. Right. Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins. He yeah. plays 
yeah, he plays an elderly person with um what we with what we would call uh, Alzheimer's, and there's so there are there are a few of those. So if you kind of want to get a really good idea how the different forms of dementia play out in a way that that you can relate is really related to re- relatable. I would kind of go in that direction. Yeah, and I sort of think when people are, are quite far in, they start to get angry and they shout and they scream and they swear a yeah. lot. Yeah, that kind of disinhibition, but not, not all of them. Um, you can't really symptomatically make a really good diagnosis of dementia. You can get a sense of it. But if you really, uh, the diagnosis tends to be a PET scan or an MRI, and then you have to, you see the characteristic tau tangles or amyloid plaques in the brain. Mm. So if you want a proper medical diagnosis, that's the way it's done. Yes. Um, which kind of brings me to the next point, really, because most people, if you go beyond what are the characteristics of dementia to what's the cause of dementia, at some point, you'll mention amyloid, right? Yes, amyloid plaque yes. Or in the brain. Yeah. And most of us are kind of aware of that. Yeah. And I kind of think there's a kind of common thread here, which is this, correlation against causation. Okay. So the way that we've all, as health professionals, been talked about diabetes is it's a sugar problem. Yes. And it's actually an insulin problem. Yeah. The way that we as health professionals have all been taught about cardiovascular disease, it's a cholesterol problem or an LDL problem. But right? really, it's an insulin problem. When it really is an insulin problem and an inflammation problem. Yeah. The way that we've been talking about cancer is it's a gene problem, cancer genes, right? When actually it's a metabolic disease. Yes. And the way we've been talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome is it's a problem with women ovulating, but nothing. So nothing about root causes. No. And the way that we've all been taught, and I understood for many years, that the root cause of of, uh, of dementia is amyloid. Okay. And to kind of give another example, it's a bit of a silly example, but I think it probably explains this in another way. So... The Martians haven't landed, but they're circling above us. Mm-hmm. And the, the Martians are actually quite a benign force. And they start looking at what's going on planet Earth. And they can see people dying. And very often when they see people dying, they see these white vans with blue lights. Yes. So there's a, there's a correlation between people dying and white vans with blue lights. Yeah. And since they're a benign force, what they decided to do is knock out a few of those white vans. And it doesn't work very well. Yeah. But they've got this absolute hypothesis that the white vans are the cause. So what they do is they get more x-rays and they knock out more white vans with blue lights. And far from fewer people dying, they see more people dying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then what they do is they say, okay, this isn't working very well, but we've looked in a greater detail at this. And often associated with the white vans and blue lights are red vans with uh, water hoses on. So maybe it's that combination of the white vans. and So then they knock out more of the white vans, and, and it, but they knock out some of the red vans with water hoses on as well, right? Yes. None of it works very well. Yeah. Right? That is correlation, not causation. Yeah. Right? And that is how medicine tends to work. 
And I sort of see that happening with LDL. So there is a buildup of LDL in your arteries, but actually what it's doing is actually trying to keep you alive by holding the artery together and covering up the damage. Kind of, yeah. I mean, um, I've done a, a, a long uh, podcast with um, with Malcolm Kendrick on that, so I won't. Let's not get into the detail here because we'll never get to it. But no, but it's it's that same thing. It's it's, it's, it's linked, but evidence. yeah. Right. So I was always taught that these amyloid plaques are the cause of the dementia, and if you remove the amyloid plaques, we'll stop the dementia. Yes, and there's been billions and billions of pounds of uh, expenditure on drugs, some of which have been fairly good at removing the amyloid plaques. None of which, none of them have done any good for the dementia. And there is no still at still today, despite the unbelievable amount of money being spent on drug research, none of the drugs work. Mm-hmm. And the reason the drugs don't work is they're not looking at root causes. They're looking at a consequence. So then you think, okay, so what's the role of amyloid? Why, after two million years of evolution, does our body produce amyloid? Just in the sense in which, why, after two million years of evolution, does our body produce cholesterol? Does it make sense that every cell in the body would produce cholesterol and it be a bad thing? Either evolution is completely stupid or we're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah, totally agree. So there clearly is a relationship in most, in many cases, not all of, dement, of dementia. So you get the dementia and you get the tau tangled. You get the amyloid and the tau tangles associated with dementia. But not in all cases do you get one or other or both. So sometimes you get, sometimes you can get both and no dementia. So there's a kind of vague correlation, but it's not an absolute one. So surprise, surprise, removing the amyloid from the, from the scene, no more does the benefit than removing the ambulances from the scene. Because mm. right? the ambulances are there as a response to try and do some good. Yeah. So what's the, road of, what's the role of amyloid? Number one, it's, um, has, um, it, it's a bit like if you imagine you've got a, you've got a company and that company is employing 100,000 people. Yeah. And the business starts to fail. The first thing you do is you don't you don't bring any more employees in, right? The next thing is you start to downscale your your workforce while protecting the most important ones. Yes. And it's a bit like that with the amyloid. So amyloid is anti-infective and they've been able to show uh that when there are infections in the brain which might bring us on to the microbiome and the oral microbiome in particular Amyloid is a response, so it's an anti-infective agent that's generated in the brain. It also has an effect on the synapses. So you know that um, in the wiring in the brain, you've got the neurons, which fire electrons, so you've got a signal, electrical signal going along. And then between each neuron and the next one, there's a synapse. There's a gap. And it releases the chemicals into the synapse, and that's onward transmission. And what the amyloid does is it reduces the number of synapses. It downscales the brain. Why does it downscale the brain? Because it's the body's natural reaction to there's either the brain is suffering a form of attack from toxins or lack of nutrition 
or some other form of insult, which means we can't sustain a brain this big anymore. So let's reduce the scale of the brain, but let's do it in such a way that we preserve the core functions, right? For example, if you forget to breathe or your heart stops beating, that's much worse than losing a bit of peripheral memory. Yeah. So actually, it's a an evolutionary response to a various forms of insult, which which could be, as you say, the brain is starved of nutri- nutrition, i.e. can't absorb the uh, glucose, yeah. or it can't get enough micronutrients because our diet is poor, or there's an infective cause which is causing toxicity, or there's toxicity in our diet. Mm. And it, but it gets exaggerated. So just as your insulin, you know, if we're designed to have a tiny amount of sugar in our in our diet, and we increase that sugar twenty fold or a hundred fold, you get this massive release of insulin to try and control it. And in the end, an excess of insulin drives all these problems. By the same token, if you do the equivalent thing to the brain, you get the amyloid. Yeah. So we're actually trying to remove the consequence and the response, not looking at the root cause. Yeah, so they're the ambulances. They're the ambulances, yeah, in many ways. Yeah, and, and, and of course... Analogy, but it's yeah. a reasonable analogy that makes the whole thing a bit more understandable, I think. And the, the body is always going to do whatever it can to protect itself right now, irrespective of the long-term consequences. Its main goal is to stay alive. Yeah. You know, we, we we are created to stay alive for as long as possible. So the body is going to do everything it can to keep us alive, even if that has a long-term negative effect on us as a person. Yeah, and it will also do it selectively. So evolution is pretty clever. So when it when, when dementia starts to shut bits of the brain down, it shuts about down the bits of the brain that are less that aren't are less vital. Yeah. So, you're, so the, the remembering to breathe, if you like, is the last thing to go. That's pretty fundamental. Whereas what happened yesterday, you know, it's not so good because you keep asking the same question. You, you start to forget, your, you know, the name of your kids and so on. But that's not end of life, is it? No. So actually, you think about it as, a, as an exaggeration of an evolutionary process. Yeah. So I guess if we kind of think about it in that way, it kind of begs, brings, begs two other questions, really. What are the causes and what are the solutions? Yeah. And it seems reasonable to me to start with the causes and then talk about some solutions, because I think to some extent the solutions are obvious from the causes. Okay, go for it. So, and in, this, is in, this is in not in any particular order. I did have a bit of a brainstorm about causes, and neither is it an exhaustive list, exhausted list. Because exhaustive and exhausted, um, just like with cancer or diabetes, there are many, many causes and many solutions. And we're in very, you know, the, the human body is a really complex system. And I think we're always looking to really simple solutions to really complex systems, and they don't exist. But what we can say is that there are some, um, some causes that are much more obvious and much more immediate. So let's tackle the hang- low-hanging fruit first yeah. and then go into more complexity when those don't work. Yeah. And I say, I think from my observation from the outside in that the medical profession seem to be very siloed in that they're looking at one specific issue in your body rather than taking the whole body as a 
one it, it thing. Does, right. So because the way that evidence-based medicine has been hijacked, in my view, I don't think there's anything wrong with evidence-based medicine as a principle, but it's been hijacked by the food industry and by the um, pharma industry, and that has flowed into medical education. So, you know, the idea that there's going to be a single cause uh, cholesterol to all the cardiovascular disease is faintly ridiculous, right? When you think about it. And the idea that there's a single cause uh, uh, sugar to diabetes is a multifactorial is ridiculous. Hmm. And um, if you, it's very interesting. I don't know if you follow UK Biobank. Do you, are you aware of UK Biobank? No, not heard of it. It's worth following the biobank. So what they've done is they started to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to um, the human condition. So with a machine learning algorithm, you put in, you, you, there is no innate prejudice, right? You put all the big data in, yeah. let the computer look at it, and the computer starts to put together the patterns, and it starts to correlate cause and effect. Mm-hmm. Without any inherent bias. Yeah. And UK Biobank, I think, is the world's leading biobank. And it's got, I think, half a million people in it. Okay. And they're starting to look at life history, life course, life events, and illness. And I think the future of um, drug discovery and treatment will move away from this kind of single drug for a single problem to much more multifactorial things, mm. which is kind of what the prolongevity program is, right? We don't just obsess about HbA1c. We look at HbA1c, your measure of long-term blood glucose, in the context of sleep, diet, nutritional status, weight, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And we're in the process of uh, having uh, introducing our own machine learning algorithm to see if we can you know the the idea is to remove me from the scene and let a computer do what i'm going to do which will make it much more scalable and cheaper yeah wow on a much bigger scale that's what uk biobank does so it's worth worth okay i'll I'll put that in the show notes yeah so in no this is not in priority order it's just in the order in which i brainstormed it diet and nutrition okay And as you said, if the brain can't get energy, brain cells will start to die and fail. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? A, you need adequate nutrition. And that is quite complicated because, you know, you've got your... People talk about the macros all the time, the proteins, the carbs and the fats. But that's only part of the story. The micronutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, and the essential proteins are often, are not found in ultra-processed food. So we've got a kind of modern-day diet, which is kind of poison with added uh, calories. Yeah. Right? We've got more calories than we need because we're not using the calories, but we haven't got the nutrition that we need because we're not taking in the right balance of vitamins, minerals, fats, etc., yeah. We've got the whole thing upside down. What we need is a pyramid with lots of nutrition and not many calories. And what we've actually got is a diet with loads of calories and not much nutrition. Yeah. And so therefore your body's still looking for the nutrition, so it goes searching for more food. Yeah, yeah exactly. So your body will always try and satisfy its nutritional requirements. So in a naive kind of way, if 
you say that we've got to eat twice as much calories in order to get the micronutrients we need, we'll be hungrier, right? Yeah. So these kind of ultra-processed food will never satisfy the body's nutritional needs, leaving you hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and fatter and fatter and fatter, like I was as a kid and a, as and an ad- adult into my 40s until I turned it on its head. Yeah. So, you know, a major cause, not the only cause, but a major cause is a diet high in sugar, carbs and processed foods, which I call the, the trifecta of e- evil. Yeah. And as we know, if you're spiking your blood sugar all the time, you'll spike your insulin yeah. and then you become insulin resistant. Insulin resistance in the brain will translate into energy can't enter the brain. And you know the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink? Yeah. The brain is now swimming in sugar, but the sugar can't enter the brain because the brain's insulin resistant. And we think about insulin resistance, and I think we tend to naively assume that insulin resistance applies equally across every cell of the body equally. It doesn't. And it shouldn't. Because the... Original idea of insulin resistance is when a fat cell gets full, it becomes resistant. Yeah. The next fat cell which isn't full isn't insulin resistant. So then you get that fat cell being filled and the next one. So if all the fat cells became equally insulin, insulin resistant at the same time, you wouldn't be able to fill them, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. You blow so up it's... the party balloon, then you will blow up the next party balloon, and then you blow up the next party balloon, and you stop before it goes pop. And you can't do them all at once because the air won't go in. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of the same process. But there are some fascinating studies uh, recently that show um, you can look at the brain's ability to absorb energy. So there was an amazing study in which they radio labeled the sugar in the bloodstream. And they could show that the radio labeled sugar wasn't able to enter the brain. So the, so you've got the water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. You've got the sugar sugar everywhere, but nor any drop to absorb or whatever you might put it. Yeah. And these were young women with mild cognitive impairment in their 40s. Wow. They then swapped them to a keto diet. So all of a sudden, you're not burning sugar, you're burning fat. Radio labeled the fat in the bloodstream and the brain, brain was gobbling it up ha- ha- happily. Yeah. So as in every other aspect of cardiometabolic disease, moving to a keto diet can be very, very helpful. Yeah. And all the things that work for diabetes pretty much all work for dementia. Yeah. Not identically, but equivalently. So, you know, avoid the processed food, don't eat too many calories, do lots of exercise, particularly high intensity exercise fast regularly do all the things that make you insulin responsive and lower your blood glucose level get yourself into ketosis at least some of the time not necessarily all of the time give your and all of those things which work for diabetes and cardiovascular disease and cancer that's why they also work for dementia yeah so that's yeah. one and and they're now calling alzheimer's type 3 diabetes Yes, and I've written a blog about that. We've got to be a bit careful because it is more complicated. And that, what again, we, we don't, in the low-carb community, I sometimes think we fall into the trap of assuming that everything's about the sugar. And we mustn't, that mustn't, we mustn't do that any more than the, cardi- the, the cardiologists have assumed that everything is about the cholesterol. Yeah. 
please, yeah. all of us, let's not fall into that trap. It's more complicated. Life is always more complicated. And so, the human body is probably more complicated than any of us can imagine or the more you look at think it, about it. complicated it is. There are some simple solutions, but they're not total solutions. So I completely agree that you can call type 3 uh, diabetes in some ways is type. Dementia is in some ways type 3 diabetes, but it's more than that. Yeah. So it's that and lots of other stuff. So as long as we don't get obsessed with assuming the answer to everything is sugar, we'll be fine. No, but I tend to look at it more holistically anyway, in that it's not just the food, but it's, as you've mentioned, the food, the diet, the lifestyle, the stress, the sleep, the sunlight, the amount of vitamin D, all these other things microbiome. impact microbiome, all impact yeah. on so some the level. The next on my list is decent sleep. Yeah. And we know that... Uh, Whereas, again, I was taught that sleep was a fairly passive thing. It's actually incredibly active. We know that the brain consumes about 25% of the calories of the body. Mm -hmm. And when we're asleep, when we're asleep, far from being less active, in many ways, the brain is more active. And all sorts of things happen when we're asleep. Our microbiome changes, our insulin levels drop, uh, and the brain goes into sort of um, refresh mode. And among the things it does is it looks at the day's uh, activity, replays it, discards the stuff that doesn't matter and consolidates the memory. Yeah. But it also goes through a sort of cleanse. So, you know, people talk about detox. I hate that word detox. But actually the brain does go through its own detox process when we're asleep. Uh. And it moves some of the bad stuff at the same time. So yeah. poor sleep, trans you know, if, if you want to kill a human being by depriving them, the quickest way to do that is to deprive them of water. And most human beings will be dead within, what, a week, 10 days? Yeah. The second fastest way to kill a human being by deprivation is just deprive them of sleep. And not many human beings will survive between more than two weeks, maybe three at an absolute maximum. So, you know, if three weeks of sleep deprivation or two weeks of sleep deprivation is enough to kill you, it makes you realize just how fundamentally important sleep is, yeah. and particularly for the brain. Yeah. Right? And they, that's why they use it as a torture, isn't it? Absolutely. And sleep is a priority for almost no one, but it is for prolongevity clients. Yeah. Uh, and, and you were asking me earlier on, sorry, I'm not making a rude gesture. Um, this is my aura ring, <laughs> and you too have an aura ring, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, I have to say that this is the – if you're interested in sleep in the way that I'm interested in sleep, I think this is the ultimate device. Yeah. Um, and I have to say the Aura blog, you don't necessarily need to divide by the device unless you've got an interest in it. But um, the the blog on the, just sign up for their, have a look at the Aura, O-U-R-A website and sign up for their blog and just read their blog and you'll learn a tremendous amount that way. Yeah. So sleep. The next is exercise and there's, uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of Peter Atia, not mm -hmm. the cardiovascular stuff, I have to say, because I think he's obsessed with LDL and statins. But equally, I think there's a lot about of what he does is excellent. And some of his stuff is very inaccessible, but there's a wonderful podcast, which we might link to in the show notes, in which he does a two way with one of the world's leading dementia experts and one of his own patients. And this patient is a documentary and filmmaker. 
And all her family are genetically predisposed. So we'll probably get on to APOE4. Uh, it'll link us. She has this genetic predisposition to dementia. And it's throughout her family riddled. And so she approached him, I think, at the age of 35 in cognitive decline. And cognitive decline tends to only go one way. And they've done a series of tests on this young uh, woman. Peter Atiyah with his intervention, backed up by this uh, dementia expert. And in five years, her brain age has gone backwards. So she, she's someone who was prematurely aging. Yeah. And at the age of 40, her brain was, as measured by these experts, five years younger than it was at the age of 35. Wow. So she's reversed her brain aging by about 10 years in five years, if you think about it. Yeah. Right? Phenomenal. Fantastic. And what was so – it's a multifactorial interven factorial intervention, but the one – what they were saying is if you only did one thing, what would the one thing be? And the one thing is high-intensity exercise. Oh, excellent. Right? And we know that HIT has a massive cardiovascular benefit, a massive benefit for diabetes. And guess what? It gives you the same benefits for, for dementia. Not for every dementia in everyone, because if the root cause is a messed up microbiome or toxins in your diet, or, you know, uh, the stuff they used to put in fillings and teeth, yeah. and that's not going to, you know, you need to look at root cause. But there are two things that I think absolutely everyone agrees on, high-intensity exercise and fasting. I don't know anyone anywhere who's in this sort of uh, aging stroke longevity space who doesn't say those two things are massive. And they're free. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Free. So exercise. The next one is to remove toxins from your diet. So, you know, the sort of toxins that are in the ultra-processed food, the toxins that are just generally coated everywhere. Um, and obviously you need to make sure that you're not full of, mag uh, uh, of lead poisoning and that kind of thing. And for those people whose blood tests show those, you can chelate the blood and remove the toxins. And that will often, it's surprising that can resolve the symptoms. This is why I'm saying it's not all about the sugar. Yeah. Infection is the next one. So, so just before I go, we go on to infection, yeah. tell me more about this chelating mm. the blood. Um, so what, what do I, they do? So what what you I mean I'm not an expert on it so do google it and look it up but essentially um I I would actually recommend Dale Bredesen's book uh The End of Alzheimer's yeah and he goes through this in some detail and he talks about something called a cognoscopy Cognos so you know that yeah you know we you know at a certain age we all have a colonoscopy to check our risk of of colon cancer yeah he says that everyone at a similar age should also go through a cognoscopy. Right. And that's a battery of tests that show your risk of developing dementia. And it's multifaceted and it's not readily available in the UK. You, there's no way, if you ask your GP for it, they'll look at you that you're mad. Mm. You have to go privately yeah. um, and get the test done. And it would be a combination of nutritional status, insulin resistant micronutrients, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, all the kind of things that we think about in the context of diabetes, but with some additional add-ons, some of which some of which will be toxic, toxin load, 
and heavy metals. Right. And if you've got a, a tiny, it's to say, you know, the old lead piping thing, right? They're all gone now, right? Yeah. And copper, zinc, iron, all those kind of things. So it's about the right balance of heavy metals, uh, the ones that you need for your metabolism, but not having an excess. Lead is the one that people talk about most, but it's not the only cause. Yeah. If you're full of lead, right, and you've got lead poisoning, they can actually chelate the lead, literally drag it out. So it's a chelation is a chemical process that absorbs it and removes it from the body. Right. Okay. Okay. The next one is infection. Yeah. Right. So we've we've known for quite a long time that leaky gut, right, and the consequences of leaky gut. Yes. But people don't talk as much about the oral microbiome, the bugs in your mouth, mm-hmm. right? But um, actually, if you think about where your gut starts, it starts in the buccal cavity. Yes. So we tend to think of our the lower end of the gut separately from the mouth. In a sense, it's separate. In another, but in another sense, if you want to really understand your microbiome, it begins, you know, as the food enters and it finishes as the food exits. So a really good um, oral health regime. Yeah. And again, if, if people want to know more about this, there's an excellent, uh, which we might link to in the show show, show notes, uh, Peter Atiyah has done a very good, good talk with um, uh, an expert on the oral microbiome and oral health. Okay. Do you know the names of these? Will you be able to give me the names of these people so yeah. we can link to the yeah because i was listening to one that was very interesting and he was a a dentist and he was saying about the 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 bugs in your mouth and how they can get in everywhere and so if you've got a leaky oral cavity then that means that the toxins and associated um microbes can get into the bloodstream worry about them getting into the heart and causing problems there but they can easily get into the brain same same thing if your blood brain barrier isn't working effectively then you can get microbes and microbial toxins in the brain and that will also lead to the development of amyloid because amyloid is is anti-infective yeah so we've kind of talked about infection we've talked about microbiome um we should also talk about inflammation yeah what links all these diseases the cancer the dementia the type 2 diabetes the cardiovascular disease they're all inflammatory right what what are the root causes of inflammation not getting enough sleep eating the wrong foods uh not the right type of exercise so it's all the same list yeah of course they generate the same processes seed oils right? seed oils and so on yeah. okay um and then the last but not least, which people are really panicked about, is a genetic predisposition. So people talk about APOE4. So yeah. that's the gene that predisposes you to dementia. Yes. And you, we have two such genes. So if you've got two APOE4 genes, in other words, you inherit one from mum and one from dad, I think it gives you a 90% risk of dementia. So the someone who's not got APOE4, so the APOE3 or E2, the overall dementia risk, I think, is 9%. Right. If you, both those genes, it's 90%. Yeah. So a lot of people don't want to test because 
it, they kind of feel, well, if I've got that gene, there's nothing I can do except panic and worry. So why would I want to know? So they don't want to know. Yeah. But we now, know that the difference between our genes and our epigenetics. Exactly. Exactly. So um, as I said to you um, before, um, I, I, I'm always buying uh, my partner Karen romantic gifts. Um <laughs> Which usually involve which usually involves stool samples, <laughs> but Christmas this year didn't involve any stool samples. Um, mercifully enough, uh, they did involve buying each of us an aura ring. But I um, just before Christmas, twenty three and me had a special deal on uh, on genetic mapping. Now, I remember when the human microbiome was first uh, mapped, and I was sort of fifteen, sixteen years old, and I remember reading Watson Crook's uh, Crick's book about it. And I think to have your uh, genome mapped at that time was a hundred thousand pounds or some incredible amount of money, a million quid. Yeah. The idea that you can now get it mapped. So they were doing two for 75 quid. So I said, Karen, I'm just pressing the button. I'm going to send. Right. Yeah. So I just, you said microbiome, but you mean DNA. I said, I'm sorry. So yeah. I should have DNA. So we yeah. had our DNA mapped for 35 quid each or something. Right. Wow. And all you do is you spit into a bottle and you send the, you spend the spit off to America. Now, um, I went recently to see um, Scott <coughs> Scott Murray at Venturi Cardiology, and I know that my CAC score is basically zero. Zero. So my cardio cardiovascular risk is none. Mm-hmm. All the things that I do mean that my diabetes risk is very very low. Yeah. And those my cancer risk. Yeah. So. The one remaining thing for me is what's my dementia risk? If I map OE4, if I've got one or two of those genes, then I have a huge increase in dementia risk, which is fine because, as you quite rightly said, your genes are not your destiny. If I discovered that I had APOE4, one or two of those genes, then I would focus on that. We sent it away, I got it back, and I discovered two things that are fascinating. The first one is that I'm 99.6% Ashkenazi Jewish. Right? <laughs> it doesn't surprise me, Craig. Well, it surprised I saying, you. <laughs> I knew I was Jewish, but that Jewish? Um, I'm kind of proud of that. The other thing I've discovered is that although my memory isn't as good, certainly isn't as good as it used to be, um, I don't have those APOE4, so I'm, I'm, I've got, I don't have that enhanced risk. So I kind of feel that the whole, you know, prolongevity premise of healthy live, live healthy for longer, I'm kind of on track. So I'm rather pleased about that. Good. But the point is that if I'd had APOE4, I wouldn't have panicked. I would have simply in- introduced more risk mitigation strategies and looked more carefully into that. So what? So what a fairly I mean, comprehensive tour of, of what the root causes of dementia are most likely to be for you. Yeah. But you... You already leave it leading a fairly healthy life or, you know, working towards metabolic health yeah. with your diet and lifestyle and sleep and stress reduction, all those things. Yeah. If you had the APOE4 genes, yeah. what would you have added in or done differently? Right. So I would have probably done Dale Bredesen's cognoscopy. Right. And that's, I think, 40 different markers. Right. And some of it's quite technical and complex. And I'd have wanted to know what are my lead levels. You know, I'd have gone into, into a lot more depth, into all the very specific markers, you know, um, brain imaging maybe, you know, uh, and all those kind of things. 
to be absolutely certain that my um, the hippocampus in my brain is not shrinking, you know, that my I've got normal brain volume and everything's working as it should be. Yeah. Okay. Right. Would have probably been a very expensive process, but if that's going to give me another 40 years of healthy life, to me, that would have been an investment. You can't get it in the NHS, but I would have said, well, you know, everything else I've done is working. That's the one thing I haven't yet gone into detail. Okay. Yeah. So um, also, it's very interesting um, on Dale's website. So um, you can, uh, we've talked about UK Biobank, we've talked about 23andMe, and there's something called Prometheus. So you can get your 23andMe uh, data, upload it to this uh, website called Prometheus, and it will give you further analysis. Right. So um, we've kind of covered most of the root causes. And um, there's another website I can recommend, which is MPI Cognition. MPI Cognition. So we'll link to some of these in the show notes. It means that those um, of your listeners and viewers that want to go further into this, delve more deeply and do the tests, yeah. free memory tests, uh, can do so and see where they are on the sort of continuum and then decide to go further if they want to. Yeah. It might be relevant to someone they know as well. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is that even people with fairly marked cognitive decline whom for whom conventional medicine can do precisely nothing except treat symptoms can do remarkably well. Just like people who are quite severe type 2 diabetes, again, for whom conventional medicine can't do very much, can do remarkably well with the right interventions. Yeah. So once you know what, what the root causes are and you've got a proper uh, set of biometric data, you can quite forensically tackle it and, and be optimistic. So for anyone here who has is worried about dementia and maybe burying their head in the sand because they really don't want to think about it or has a friend or colleague or relative... I think there's huge optimism. Yeah. So and I, I think and I think it's important to say that by the time that dementia starts to become noticeable we've already lost about 10% of our brain function. Yeah. Exactly that. Um and maybe more. Yeah. So again the correlation between the plaques and the symptoms isn't great. Um, so this idea, if you want, of a cognoscopy is a really good idea because you can then do it well in advance, see where you are and plan accordingly. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing is it doesn't just happen overnight. This has it been doesn't. going on for decades. Yeah. And But the point is, just like the diabetes and the cancer and the cardiovascular disease, it's largely avoidable if yeah. you know what the root causes are and you employ the right risk mitigation strategies. Yeah. So... I suppose we should come to solutions, really. Yeah. Um, most of which I've really covered. So keto diet, certainly helpful for some people. Focus on nutrition and micronutrients. And much as I am call myself the pharmacist that gave up drugs, that doesn't mean I therefore replace all the drugs with uh, all sorts of expensive supplements. Yeah. But it's it's certainly clear that certain things, even if like me, you've got an excellent diet. Most of us are low in vitamin D and K2. Most of us are low in magnesium and and, and uh, vitamin C. Yes. So I think most people will benefit from a certain level of supplementation. And if you are at greater risk of dementia, 
then you would take some more specific supplementation. Yeah. So that's the next thing. I guess you'd need to know more about yourself to find out what what it is that you would need. It's no good saying, oh, try this or try that. Well, I think that's right. And um, in the NHS now, we don't test for vitamin D because, you know, everyone's short of it. Yeah. So we give everyone an almost homeopathic dose of vitamin D and make an assumption. Um, The dose for vitamin D that I reckon to my clients is 10 times the dose that the NHS uh, recommends. And even at that dose, when we test, some of my clients are still low in vitamin D. Yeah. The point is that you want to dose forensically. So you need to have to know what your level is. Yeah. I think you can get it tested for about 25 quid. Um, our doctors do do the vitamin D test, test whenever I've had a vitamin, whenever I've had, ah, put my teeth in properly. Whenever I've had a blood test recently, it has come up with my vitamin D levels. Your GP's unusual. The NHS policy is don't test, just treat. Okay. Treat blindly. And yeah. I don't think that's particularly clever. Just like we, you know, we don't test properly thyroid. We don't test uh, cardiovascular disease. We look at HbA1c, but not insulin, and on and on and on. Yeah. Anyway, don't get me started on all of that. Um, <laughs> sleep, sleep we've talked about, exercise we've talked about. Now, here's another interesting one. There are some fascinating studies now with hyperbaric oxygen. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? So you go into um, an oxygen tent you breathe in relatively pure oxygen and you might have two or three times the normal amount of oxygen in the normal atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Too much oxygen is actually uh, poisonous. It turns out to be, uh, I suspect, a form of hormesis. So you know that that old uh, expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Yes. And there's a variety of uh, forms of hormesis, um, one of which is fasting. Another of which, which which you can talk to us about is cold water swimming, (laughs) right? Yeah. Another one is high intensity exercise. Yeah. Another one is metformin. And it looks like the reason that people taking metformin live longer is it's a kind of form of chemically induced hormesis. So it has an effect at a very fundamental level on mitochondrial processes. And I, I suspect time will prove that hyperbaric oxygen falls into the same category. Okay. But they've shown uh, in some cases a quite advanced dementia that if you get those people and put them in, hy- in into a hyperbaric oxygen, they do remarkably well. Wow. So I reckon there'll be, I mean, hyperbaric oxygen, as you probably know, started with the divers, right? <coughs> so they come up um, and, 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 it, and so that they don't get the bends when they emerge from the deep. They're subject to that. Yeah. So we know that it's kind of effective and safe in the context of divers. Yes. And they've extended the research into all sorts of things now, including um, dementia. Yeah. So and some definitely... cancers as well, I think. Yeah. So yeah. that's definitely one to watch. It's, it's early days, but um, interestingly, the, the Israelis seem to lead on so much of this research. And again, a lot of that research is being done in Israel. And if you're interested in that, uh, David Sinclair, Professor David Sinclair, the, the guy who wrote Lifespan, um, it's on his podcast, so that's worth listening to. And he talks quite a lot about... Um, you have to be careful with Dave because he's very pro-vegan. So I think with all these experts, once they get outside their area of knowledge and start spreading into other areas, you know, um, I think Lifestyle as a book is fantastic until he gets on to 
promoting a vegan diet. I think he's wrong about that, but right about much else. Yeah. So I can't follow any of these people, absolutely. Just like I don't follow Peter Tier in terms of LDL, but I follow a lot of the rest of the <coughs> what he says. So um, hyperbaric oxygen, that's a new thing. Yeah. Um, you have to be a bit discerning, don't you, when you're listening you've got to be a bit or discerning. reading? Um, and I think somewhere in that kind of long list of, of different interventions would give most people a place to start. And some of these things are obvious and they're true for all of the diseases. If you're at greater risk, then I would go into a greater analysis, something in terms of that cognoscopy, and then take more specific actions. Yeah. So there are solutions out there, and I, I think there's a lot of optimism, just like we used to believe that, you know, type 2 diabetes is an inevitable lifestyle disease, uh, an inevitable chronic disease, and there's nothing you can do. It will just progress. You'll end up with more and more medication. In the end, it'll kill you. Same thing used to be thought about as true for cancer, cardiovascular disease. Dementia is in the same category now. Yeah. So there's lots and lots of hope. Brilliant. Brilliant. Is there anything else we need to add? Um, I think um, we've covered most of it, uh, actually. Good. Uh, I've tried to make it accessible and reasonably easy to understand. And then what we'll try and do in the show notes is provide some links so people who want to delve deeper will have the, you know, a, a springboard to do so. Yeah, brilliant. That's fantastic. Thank you. Pleasure. So before we finish, how can people get in touch with you? Tell us, tell them a bit about your Prolongevity program. Yeah. So. Um, the premise behind prolongevity is live healthy for longer. So I think most of us naively but reasonably assume that the way to live longer is not to get any of the diseases. But actually, if you were to eliminate cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia, you'd probably only add three or four years to life. And the people who really study longevity go way beyond all of that. So you, Yes, you want to escape those diseases, but on their own, they're not the complete answer. They're partial answer. Okay. And the idea of the prolongevity program is it first gets you into a safe place to avoid those the diseases that we dread. And then it says, where do we go from here? How can we use our knowledge, supplementation um, and self-experimentation, if you like, to take us beyond the risk of diabetes and cancer into live a long and healthy life like the people in the blue zones do. Yeah. So that's the premise of prolongevity. And that's why we called it prolong longevity, prolongevity. We didn't call it an end to diabetes or an end to cancer because those things are only partial answers. Yeah. It's about so, living a full life and then sitting in your chair one night and going to sleep and not waking up again rather than absolutely and um, diving down into more and more health, personal. quality of life loss of quality of life very personal to me because um my great my aunt so my 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 mum is one of four kids and my aunt died last week aged 101 fabulous auntie, auntie ronnie we loved her dearly never went into a home and she was born on january the first so every year on her birthday, on January the 1st, the whole family used to get together in a restaurant and celebrate being together. It was a reason for us to all to come together and celebrate Auntie Ronnie. Yeah, well, I'm sorry for your loss. A slim, beautiful, elegant woman up until probably the age of 100. 
that's and we that's buried it. we buried her this week, and the soliloquy uh, at her burial was fantastic. Um, her two sons and one of her grandchildren spoke, and as I said to my cousin Tony, who I you know I love dearly, I said, you know, your mum had a fantastic life. You know, just imagine it. A hundred years ago, she was born before the First World War. Always was modern and up to date and slim and elegant. I said she had a fantastic life and a great death. Mm. And I think that's about as good as the human experience gets. Yeah. That's what we'd all like to have. Yeah. So, well, I wish you long life. Yes. Thank you very much. So you can catch me um, if you Google uh, the word pro longevity, it's just longevity with pro in front of it, or either of our Twitter handles. Uh, at Graham S. Phillips, G-R-A-H-A-M, spelt is my Graham S. Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. Or for Pro Longevity, it's at longevity underscore pro. Fabulous. We'll put links in the show notes as well. So I know you've given us loads of tips and things all through the podcast, but have you? can you leave us with three top tips, which could be about what we've spoken about today, or it could be just very generalised. I think there are three really simple uh, tips. Well, one is eat less and eat less often. Yeah. Very cheap. Yeah. The next one is get decent sleep and make it a real priority. And the third one is do some high-intensity exercise. It will take you about 10 or 15 minutes a day. Yeah. It will A, save money and B, save time. Okay. So if you've got a few minutes, I want you to go into – your interpretation of high intensity exercise for our listeners because we hear sure. it often spoken about high intensity high intensity but what does that actually mean it means um exercising to the point where your heart rate is at maximum exercising to the point where you couldn't hold a conversation right exercising to the point where your body thinks you're about to be eaten by the mythical saber-toothed tiger yeah and it will then set, set off all these regenerative processes to enhance your cardiovascular system, enhance your mitochondria. In other words, you induce, it's, a, it's when I talk about hormesis, right? It's a form of discomfort. So there's a difference between disease and dis-ease. Yeah. Right? So you and I can sit in our chair 24-7 and Alexa will bring us absolutely everything. We will never be in any discomfort. We will never be hungry right? We will never have to move. We'll never have to exert ourselves. And all these different forms of hormesis make you at, in discomfort. Yes. Dis not disease, but dis-ease. Yeah. So it's inducing that what doesn't make you strong, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. Right? So the, ex the examples I gave earlier on, prolonged fasting, so that means more than 24 hours, um, extremes of heat and cold, so the sauna and the cold bath, mm -hmm. high-intensity exercise um, are all part and parcel of that. Yeah. And they will in they induce your sirtuin genes, your longevity genes, and it's those mechanisms that make you live healthy for longer. Right. So it's a form of exercise where at the end of it, your heartbeat is at absolute maximum and you could not hold a conversation. Yeah. So my primal learnings we talk about sprinting so to sprint you know we would have sprinted away from an animal or we would have sprinted after an animal if we were trying to catch yeah. it so we're trying to do that where you're sprinting it might only be 10 15 
20 seconds yeah. and doing that a few times yeah. once a week or My once every 10 days. Um, yeah. I think it is it Covent Garden Station that's got 172 steps. Right. Yeah, probably. And, well, the first the time steps. I think I got to the 15th st- stairwell and then fell backwards. <laughs> now I can do all 172 steps and what's what well, I mean I'm an old man in my 60s, right? And I sprint past all these young kids who are like, "Oh, I can do that." And they get to about 20 steps and you can see them, they just they give up. And I can now sprint to the top. I mean, not fast sprinting, but I can keep a fairly steady all the way up to the top. And that's kind of my benchmark. Can I beat the people who were queuing for the list, the, the lift, who are still waiting for that second lift to come to the surface, right? Mm. So whether, while they're queuing 15 minutes from the lift, I'm already at the top. So I'm saving a lot of yeah. time in doing a bit of hormesis along the way. And that's my favorite example of uh, high-intensity exercise. Time-saving and free. Yeah, yeah. There's so much we could do for free. Brilliant. Graham, thank you for joining me again. It's been brilliant having you here. Absolute pleasure. Good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Graham, for really covering dementia and Alzheimer's with us. I one of the things that I really took away was that the about the amyloid plaques and how in conventional medicine seeing this buildup of amyloid plaques is is a sign that that the person is suffering from dementia or alzheimer's let's just say dementia and cover the, the whole umbrella but the the key takeaway point that i took is that the amyloid plaques are not the problem they are part of the solution in the sense that they are trying to do a job that they're really struggling with and they're building up as a form of protection and that by taking those plaques away doesn't actually help the disease. So I think many of us, on you listening to this now, are probably at an age where you can start to do something. You can start to be thinking about what will your life be in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time, depending on your lifestyle. Because what we do know is that dementia didn't just start yesterday. It's something that's been building up for decades. And so we have within our power now to make changes to the best of our knowledge to avoid those things down the line. Now, my family don't particularly suffer from dementia. Um, We tend to be knocked out by heart disease and cancers. So part of my way of doing this is, one, to avoid heart heart disease because I didn't have it to start with, um, but also to reduce the risk of cancer because I know that you know, I have had tumours in the past and it's quite possible that I could get them again. So part of my why around health is around cancer and heart. But actually, I'm really pleased that in doing so, I'm taking steps towards reducing my risk of getting Alzheimer's 
in as I get older because it's not pleasant. I don't know for the person who's actually going through that. Um, I think probably early on you're very aware about it. And as you get further on, maybe you're less aware, but we don't know. We don't know what these people are feeling and thinking and going through. It must be really challenging for that person. But we do know being on the outside that, that the family, close family and friends are the ones that do really suffer with this. So I think it's really important that we start considering now to take action to improve our health to reduce that risk now because as I said it takes decades and decades so I hope you enjoyed the episode there's lots and lots of resources in the show notes and you can find the show notes at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero eight two It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories, and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.